Welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga, a podcast for the body, heart, and mind. And we're doing part two today with Dr. Lauren Sparks about both the Enneagram and suffering. And we're going to look at how types five, six, seven, eight, and nine respond to suffering. Dr. Sparks has a doctorate as a nurse practitioner. She also has a master's degree in narrative therapy. And Kat's going to kick it off. Right. And before I talk about the five, before I forget, I'm going to take it off road. Two things. Mm-hmm. So I just read a book. A friend of mine uh, landed to me. It's by Jody Picoult. It's called. I love Bo- her. Right. She's so good. Um, the book is called Book of Two Ways. And if you've never read it, I encourage you to um, look it up and maybe you like it. And it's the main character basically has two occupations in life and one of those she's a death doula which i didn't even know existed so it was really interesting um book to read in terms of it is somebody who is with a person at the end of their life journey and nine out of ten they're suffering that's happening Mm -hmm. and their job is just to be there And that I think is such a hard thing to do because for me, at least I've gone through some very traumatic, catastrophic experiences in my life. And yet when I see somebody else suffering through something really catastrophic, I get lost. I don't know how to help them or what to say or to say the right thing or the wrong thing too much, too little. Do you acknowledge? Do you kind of leave it alone? So there's, I just have a lot of compassion for people who are the ones next to the ones who suffer mm-hmm. because that's also almost like a suffering spot to be in, not to compare in a very different way. So I'm just going to leave it there, book recommendation. And then as y'all were talking, have this quote. So I, you know, 2022, I don't write notes. I just screenshot everything that I want to remember. And this is a quote that I carry with me. It's by David Kessler from Finding Meaning, The Six Stages of Grief. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about loss, but I think it could translate to suffering as well. And here's what he wrote. Your loss is not a test, a lesson, something to handle, a gift, or a blessing. Loss is simply what happens to you in life. Meaning is what you make happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Like cry, and you know you can put suffering into into that quote. I think it would be applicable as well. But to everything that Lauren you've said, I agree with you. It's not a lesson. It's not a window opening up as a door closing down. It just what happens in life, and the meaning. It's up to you to make what it means to you, and it could be different for every single one. And David. Mm-hmm. By. he's just like a renowned yep. grief author yep. and so highly recommend if anybody's going through an experience of grief or suffering David Kessler is a great person to read yeah. and if you want non-fiction Jodi Picoult like it takes me like years to read a book and then I'm like a black hole of borrowers of books because friends give them to me I'm like Make sure everybody in line read it because once you give it to me, you might not see it for a year or so. It might take me a minute. 
So anyway, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really interesting um, because I, I never even knew there's such an occupation as deaf doula. Yeah. Very interesting. All right, moving on to five. Let's not forget the five. So our fives are the investigator. And, you know, fives tend to be so much in their headspace that they may seem to be doing okay in the midst of suffering, even if deep down they're not feeling a lot. And um, in the midst of suffering, fives could be spending a lot of times on the internet looking for answers of their suffering. They can gather tons of information. Um, but during a crisis, five can also bring um, to the rest of us objectivity and rationality that they can be helpful in a stressful situation. So fives could go to their low sides of seven. And under stress, they can, can become frenetic and very sort of scattered and all over the place, unfocused. And um, their shadow side is withholding. So in the midst of suffering, five could start withholding not just their time, touch, but also resources and affections or money. And um, they can also start to isolate themselves from others in the world. So Lauren, the question to you is, what are the dangers of self-isolating and disconnecting from others during pain and suffering? And I know you've mentioned it's easy to fall into, I'm a man, I'm at the one island out there and no one understands and it's just mine. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, I think suffering is often like walking a tightrope and it's sort of, as I said earlier, like when we're suffering, it can be so helpful to turn inward and listen, right? And taken to the extreme when we turn inward and it's sort of intellectualized instead of it turning inwards towards feeling, I think it can compound um, pain, Talk, thinking of a death doula, um, I think they're it's sort of remarkable because most of us don't choose suffering, right? <laughs> they're actively choosing suffering or to suffer with. Um, I think most of us have a little bit of a seven in us and we spend our life sort of <laughs> evading suffering as best we can. Um, so I think, you know, in the midst of suffering, we can uh, aim to be a little bit like a death <laughs> and to um, turn inwards towards those feelings um, as opposed to tr trying to just intellectualize. Um, I actually read a poem last week that I loved. It's just three lines. It says, um, I thought I was alone who suffered. I went on top of the house and found every house on fire. And so, like, when we also, when we isolate, I, you know, we, like you said, Kat, we can be left feeling as if we're all alone in our suffering. And when we feel vulnerable, as we so often do in suffering, um, we most need connection at that point. Um, and not just any connection. I mean, there, we've all probably been suffering and been in the midst of many people and felt greater suffering because, uh, there wasn't that connection. There wasn't that acknowledgement of our suffering. Um, but in the midst of suffering, we need that, that deep connection. We need somebody reaching for us, somebody willing to accompany us like a death doula. Um, and we have to balance that healthy turning inward um, 
with accepting the loving gesture, um, receiving the grace, um, reaching back and, and staying connected. That point, when you were sharing that point, Thich Nhat Hanh said something along the lines of when you know how to suffer, you suffer much less. Mm -hmm. And I, part of what he was saying, because he followed that up, this is like a Dharma talk that he gave and he followed up talking about compassion. But also I think like when you know how to not disconnect yourself from others, when you know how to stay connected, when you know how to understand that suffering is you know, a universal given that, that we all are in this now in different ways, it's not the same, suffering is unique and different, but when you learn to understand what suffering is, when you start to practice self-compassion, and when you stay connected to others, that when you know how to suffer, suffering is, is much less. Um, his words sound so simple, and yet I think they're pretty profound, that that there is an art of suffering that involves knowing how to grieve, knowing how to stay connected, knowing how to practice self-compassion, knowing how to be mindful in the midst of your suffering, knowing how to breathe. Um, so yeah, I just love Thich Nhat Hanh and he died earlier this year. So just want to honor him in saying that. Um, but yeah, so let's move into our six, um, the loyalist. So our six, the worst case scenario thinkers. And when they're not doing well, they go to the low side of three and they start to be involved in lots of busyness. And trying to cope with their shadow side of anxiety might tempt them to pretend to be strong um, or look to strong authoritative leaders um, who will tell them what to do in order to remain safe. Um, and even secure, because security and safety is so important to the sixes. And they do have this tendency towards tribalism or groupthink or looking towards sort of a cult leader who can tell them, this is what you need to do to stay safe and relieve your anxiety. Um, so because there are a lot of us out there who are anxious, not just sixes, what do you advise clients to do during a time of suffering that can help them with their anxiety? Yeah. Ooh. Well, as a two, I love to advise. Um, <laughs> I find it constant. I find it constantly. Um, it's challenging for me because I found most advice really unhelpful and, as I've said, sort of even hurtful during my disease process. Um, I was actually like, as you were asking the question, I was thinking about um, the quote Kat said, the beginning of the quote, because she said it brought tears to her eyes and it did to me as well. Um, this is not a test. This is not a lesson. I think I, speaking from my own experience, what would have lowered my anxiety? Tattooing that across my forehead. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. That, that knowledge just invites like a like just a, a an expansiveness <laughs> into my being um and then when I think about what was helpful for me um and lowering anxiety in the midst of my suffering um engaging deep breathing helps me um 
it didn't pull me out of fight or flight. I was trained to tell people to deep breathe and they would come out of fight or flight. I think I lived there for five years, honestly. Um, but it did turn down the volume. Um, so deep breathing was helpful. I had a yoga practice before um, erythromyalgia and um, while it really affected my ability to do yoga, still staying connected to the practice, even if it was a seated <laughs> practice, I got used to a lot of uh, more yin sort of um, practices. Um, that certainly was helpful to me. It helped me stay connected to a part of me that hadn't been taken from me like so many other things had. Um, naming my suffering to safe people, which I think I've alluded to, um, speaking uh, the truth of my losses. I remember I was still in the protection phase. <laughs> of uh, protecting the people I loved. And my dad and I, you know, I had sort of limped out to this park that was across the street from my house. And I was sitting on the ground because uh, being in touch with the earth and being outside felt healing for me, even if I wasn't able to walk normally. And um, he said, oh, a marathon is coming from across the bridge. And I had been a marathon runner. And I remember just thinking, please, please, please don't run past me. Please, please, please don't run past me. Like just seeing these herds of people, I just, I wanted, I wanted the ground to swallow me, <laughs> but I didn't share that with my dad. And he was a safe person I could have shared it with. Um, so I think it, it was a real, it showed a real growth and it was a big part of my healing process to step into naming those that suffering because to my dad, it was exciting. And he had been to me, been with me to so many marathons and he still saw me as a marathon runner. And so to share that loss with him um, is something I look back on and wish I could have done differently. Um, as I've said, like staying connected to that small voice or, you know, tr trusting my instincts um, would be pretty huge. And then I, I, one of the biggest things for me was, that lowered anxiety was finding ways uh, to move anger through my body. It was so frustrating because anger is such a, a physical feeling or emotion and I couldn't run anymore. And you know, I used to love to run and get that, you know, after a hard day, get that out. Um, and before my arms were affected, I would go outside and I would sit and I would throw rocks. Sometimes I would throw snowballs. Um, and when erythromyalgia took over my hands, um, it was really frustrating. I would sometimes lay on the floor and do the hand motions of running and see myself in my brain <laughs> running, which offered me some relief. And I would also get in my car and close the door and scream at the top of my lungs because I still had my voice. <laughs> yeah. um, so finding ways to move that anger through my body instead of feeling like it was just trapped inside. Um, and then uh, one thing that was big for me, I think, was sort of reconnecting to my creativity. I made something I call angry art. Um, so it wasn't pretty art. My hands weren't working normally. It was made with like Sharpies and printer paper and highlighters. <laughs> um, but it was the first time actually I sat down to make like angry art. And I was like, it doesn't matter how it looks. You've just got to get this anger out. 
that I was able to like express anger at God and ask the questions on paper, like, why, why me? Why don't you hear me? Was my, you know, my perception. Um, please, please, please. And so reconnecting to that creativity and allowing myself to make that angry art was another way of moving the anger through my body. So those are things that were helpful for me. And maybe that spurs for other people, things that might uh, be helpful for them. I like it. I like it. I think the key is not to lock it in and to let it out, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how loud it is, no matter how embarrassing it is, or people will judge or think I'm crazy. It's still a healthy way. You know, in my house, we say better out than in for yeah. many <laughs> and anger one of those for sure all right well on to the happy-go-lucky number seven so Lauren I'm married to seven mm -hmm. and um sevens might reframe their suffering as something positive and they have this way of coping with suffering through optimism which can be both their strength and their weakness and sevens tend to fear pain or suffering. It is not until they can embrace the pain of life that they can begin experience the growth and balance. And I think embracing pain for sevens, at least in my experience, my seven in my life, it's almost like a phobia. You know, like think of your biggest fear and then you go and embrace that. You know, easier said than done, but that's the level of anxiety and, and just, pushing it back that I think seven has in terms mm -hmm. of embracing a pain and suffering. So sevens under stress also can go to low side of one, which is um, meaning that they uh, become more morally superior, rigid, critical, and judgmental. And the shadow side of seven is gluttony. And during the pain and suffering, they might start numbing their pain instead of feeling it they would um, throw themselves into different type of excess. And it doesn't just, you know, include material things. It could be experiences and, you know, putting themselves in different life situations that are exciting and fast-paced and fun. So Lauren, in your opinion, what are some ways that you have observed that people numb their pain in the midst of suffering? And I think we're all guilty of that. It's not just a seven thing. Mm -hmm. You want to exactly. know? Exactly. <laughs> I think the ways we numb are endless. And, you know, I, it's funny you said that because I was about to say, we've all done it and we'll all probably do it again. <laughs> but I think the most interesting thing is when people get curious about their desire to numb, you know, and maybe it's only briefly, like maybe they still choose to numb, but uh, for a moment they sit with the pain um, and the loss and the grief. Um, in my opinion, this this uh, choosing for a moment not to numb is, is like holy work, it's sacred. <laughs> um, and the best example I come to is during my disease process, I had this reoccurring dream about this really large black snake. And sometimes it would just be his face right in my face. Um, but it was reoccurring and it was frightening to me and he felt very threatening. And I was talking to my little sister about this dream and she said, you know, the next time the snake shows up, look the snake in the eyes. And so weeks later, I started having a dream and I was dreaming 
that the snake was wrapping his body around me in the bed. And the snake was huge, like he was as big as a very large tree. And he was wrapped all the way around me and he was about, about to get to my face. And I remembered my sister said, look him in the eyes. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't do it. It's too scary. He's going to kill me. And um, right at the last second before he got to my face, I turned and I looked him in the eyes. And in the dream, he turned into all of this colorful confetti. It, it came down over me. And then there was this feeling of deep peace. Um, and so... That dream, it just kind of leads me back to, in essence, when people choose for a few minutes not to numb, they're looking the snake in the eye. Um, and they, my experience at least, is that I realize that in some way I'm larger than the snake or I'm larger than the suffering, if even only in that moment. Um, and these feelings that I spent so long running from were here to help me. Um, and the snake was my, my friend and not my foe. <laughs> so it sort of comes back to what Kat was saying about sevens, uh, sort of being inclined to, to avoid or run from suffering, um, but befriending that, that suffering or that snake, I think, um, can be a beautiful journey. And like I said, holy work. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, First of all, I think our dreams um, definitely are, are unconscious and it's trying to become conscious. And so that dream may have, in fact, been saying, you know, embrace your suffering, embrace your pain, befriend your grief. And as you do, you will come back to life. And that confetti just represents the joy of life. And, and we do, we have to move through the grief and suffering um, you know, to find our way back to joy. Um, and so I, I think that was just, wow, a beautiful, your, your, a beautiful dream. Your unconscious was speaking to you and you listened to it and you, and you looked suffering in the eye <laughs> and, and you did that, right. You know, I saw you as your friend do that throughout, you know, your experience with the burning man syndrome and, uh, we can all learn from that. We can all learn from you to look suffering in the eye and, and to um, stay with it instead of to run from it through all sorts of gluttony and distractions. Um, so that's hard. And that's, that's lifetime work for all of us, whether we're seven or not, to learn how to sit with the discomfort and the pain. Um, so let's look at our eights, our challengers. Um, when life gets tough, our eights can find the strength within to meet those challenges. Although sometimes that strength within means that they become too tough and, um, and don't allow themselves to kind of go to the pain and feel the vulnerability of whatever they're facing. Um, so, and it, you know, having an eight friend when you're going through suffering can really be a great thing because they want to protect you. They want to be with you in their pain and suffering. But when it's the eight facing their pain and suffering, that, that can be much harder for the eight because to be weak and to be vulnerable is tough for them. So eights have to be careful about withdrawing from others because in stress, they can quickly go to the low side of five. 
where they go into isolation mode or they become a researcher who tries to find control by finding answers about their suffering. And probably anybody who's had like a medical diagnosis or even a mental health diagnosis can relate to, to that researching and going online and trying to find all the answers. Um, but certainly the eights or the fives can go into overdrive uh, with that when they're suffering. And then like I've like I've said, the, the threes, the sevens, and the eights are the most uh, likely to push down um, suff suffering and pain, uh, to not go into the heart space, but they're also the most aggressive numbers on the Enneagram, so they tend to um, push back a little bit, be more uh, of the assertive types, although my mentor, Jerry Wagner, actually switches that. He's um, the first person who ever wrote a dissertation on the Enneagram. He's really well re renowned in the Enneagram world. Um, and he actually says that um, the seven, he would switch the seven and the one. Uh, so just something to consider. Um, but the eight uh, shadow side is lust. And this lust is not a lust uh, sexually, although it could be, but it's not necessarily a sexual lust. Um, but it's usually a lust for power and control. Um, and so they might get intense, angry, and seek to control things when they're in the midst of suffering, which also can, you know, push other people away. And we were just talking about how important it is to be connected. And so ironically, the very thing they need, that connection and support, they're pushing away through that anger, through that intensity. Um, and they, of course, we know eights are, very, uh, very much the type that struggles with being vulnerable with saying, this is really painful, this is really hard. Um, and that's exactly what they need to help with the pain and suffering as well. Um, so tell us about vulnerability. Of course, Brene Brown has been really big in inspiring all of us to be more vulnerable and to get in touch with our softer side. But how does vulnerability help us in the midst of pain and suffering? Yeah. I think embracing my vulnerability was one of the biggest learnings I hold on to <laughs> from my suffering. Um, you know, I think as a two, I have pride. <laughs> I, it's, it's strange to admit that, but there's a pride in um, not wanting to, you know, show our soft underbelly, <laughs> I guess. Um, I, you know, and as I've said, I wish I had been more honest with friends and family much earlier or about how horrific the pain actually was and how much I was suffering. Um, the sort of duplicity of faking it <laughs> is exhausting. And, yeah. and we don't need that on top of, you know, the actual suffering itself. Um, and I didn't tell the truth in an effort to protect the people that I loved, but this actually, you know, builds walls between us in a time when we most need that connection. Um, I was taking care of when I needed to be, or I'm sorry, I was taking, I was taking care of others when I needed to be taking care of myself. Um, looking back now, I, I tell the truth. I say, as soon as I know it, I don't know where I heard that, but I like that <laughs> saying. Um, so I tell the truth as soon as I know it, because it helps me keep my heart open to the world. Um, I, I see now 
you know, and I think it's true for eights. My, my vulnerability is my superpower. It's my biggest strength. Um, and I don't need to protect other people from my vulnerability or my suffering. Um, because I, you know, as a therapist, I think it is one of the, the strongest healing tools that I have in my toolkit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say that AIDS have the hardest time because not only do they struggle with trust, but they struggle with vulnerability. They have the hardest time showing up for therapy. Um, they, might, they might initially go and book a few sessions, but then it gets too real. And then they're going to have to be too open with the, with the painful stuff. And so they can be the type that um, either don't show up to begin with in the therapist's office or kind of run from it. But when they do stay with therapy or with a good friend who they can open up to and be emotionally um, vulnerable with, man, that's when the eight gets into a really, really healthy place. And man, a healthy eight, they are going to change this world. They're a rock star. And so I would just encourage any eights listening, you know, it, your temptation is to run from the vulnerability because you don't trust people and because it's scary and you want to protect, you know, your heart, but also other people's. And, um, you know, and we love that protector in you. I think other people love that part of you. Um, but, you know, one way to protect yourself is to actually care for this heart space. And, and that's just so important for the eight. So I hope that they'll hear that and work on that vulnerability piece because, you know, when an eight goes to that heart space, man, they're going to the two, that's their era of strength. And they just, they start to flower, they start to bloom. And uh, we're all better for that. Uh, so, so yeah, but vulnerability, it doesn't matter if you're an eight or, or not, all of us um, can be tempted to run from it um, because, you know, that's just how we're wired um, to be, to be strong and to be in control. Um, and yet we know we're our best selves when we name the hard stuff. And I, I'm just thankful that you're one of those people, a good friend of mine that I can name the tough stuff with and, and be honest with. And, uh, it's, it's fun to do that on Marco Polo with you. you know? <laughs> no, I wanted to share one thing that came to mind while you were speaking. Um, my little sister is an eight and she's worked very hard to become a very healthy eight. And when I think about a healthy eight, I think of this mama bear energy that can feel so helpful and healing in the midst of suffering. So shout out to eights. I think they would probably underestimate what they have to offer a person mm-hmm. that's suffering, but that mama bear energy that is strong and yet like deeply compassionate is uh, such a gift. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So our nines, I'm going to finish us off with the nines. The nine, the peacemaker starts to look like an unhealthy six and becomes more anxious in the midst of suffering. Um, They may be paranoid like a six or start to catastrophize. And the shadow side of the nine is sloth. And so they can start to numb out and uh, get depressed. They might be on the couch watching some Amazon Prime. And because the nines are very relational, like the two, they can focus on the pain of others instead of on their own pain. And like the four and the fives um, and nines, 
they tend to withdraw from others in the midst of pain and suffering. Um, but nines need to be reminded that their presence matters um, in the midst of their pain and suffering. Like that's the healing childhood message. That's the needed message for a nine is that your presence matters. So they need to hear that. Um, so because the nines need to know that their matter, their presence matters in the midst of suffering and that they need to feel seen and heard and acknowledged, um, how do we let people know whether they're nine or not, see them and love them when they're hurting? Yeah, that's, it's complex, right? Because it's so different for everyone. Um, how I would respond to one friend who is suffering might be quite different than how I'd respond to another. Um, and I think that's part of the beauty of it. That's part of the beauty of being seen is that we're all still these unique individuals, even in the midst of our suffering, you know? Um, I think I like, you know, as I think about it, I'd like to answer the question with two examples um, related to my dad. Um, because during my disease process, he most showed up for me in ways that made me feel seen and heard. Um, the first example I think of is um, my dad was not above doing the grunt work. Um, my dad is a nine, by the way. <laughs> and he, um, he cooked and cleaned when my hands were failing me. He drove me to the hospital for clinicals so I could finish my doctorate. He washed my laundry. You know, I never imagined as a 30-year-old woman, my dad would be having to do my underwear. Um, and he told me this thing repeatedly, um, I will be your hands and feet. I will be your hands and feet. And he was. <laughs> and um, he showed up in a way that was, um, I'm tearful as I explain it, because it was so practical and yet so deeply dignifying. Um, the second example I think of is I was in an appointment at the, at the Mayo Clinic, and I saw a neurologist who thought that my disease uh, was psychosomatic. It's interesting because he was um, questioning my disease process, even though I had been diagnosed by his colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> So even once I said, look at my chart, you know, your colleagues have diagnosed me and referred me to you. Um, he continued to be condescending and unhelpful and, and quite adversarial, honestly. And um, I was too beaten down to argue with him at that point. And I remember my dad um, saying to him at the end of our visit that my daughter will finish school and she's going to help people just like you did. And my dad is not a confrontational person and he didn't say it in necessarily a confrontational way. But what I heard my dad saying was my daughter matters and you won't take her dignity. She's every bit as worthy as you. In fact, she's exactly the same as you. Um, which is, which is a, a healthy nine to speak up like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on the day I graduated, I ordered an extra stole, which is like the thing that you put around your neck um, for graduation. And I, I draped it over my dad's neck and I have a picture of us both in our stoles and our graduation gear um, standing there together. So 
I say all of that to say in the midst of my suffering, my dad saw me, he heard me, he validated me, but um, maybe even more importantly, he saw beyond my pain and suffering. Um, he wasn't only my hands and feet, he called me back to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so for my dad, who I said is a nine and therefore by default might not always be aware that his presence matters. Um, it's hard for me to say it without crying, but I hope it's in some way healing for him to know that his steady presence was often the thing that kept me <laughs> going. Yeah. yeah, that his presence kept me in the fight. Mm. Wow, thank you so much. And I think that whether we're nine or not, um, we all need to be told um, by friends and family that we matter and, and that I see you, I celebrate you, I love you. And sometimes that's in action, sometimes that's in words, sometimes that's through gift giving, like it happens in all sorts of different ways, but we have to like show up for one another and say, you know, you matter, but especially when somebody's suffering, like if, you know, somebody that we know has had a loved one die or is diagnosed with a difficult disease, like you went through, like people have to reach out and say, you matter to me. And, and, um, and sometimes not ask, how can I be supportive, but just be supportive through doing something or sending something or saying, I love you. Um, yeah, because sometimes people don't know what they need when they're, yeah, yeah. even just, I don't know what to say, but I can't get you off my mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 Um, well, I also want to highlight you. Thank you for going through all of the nine numbers, but you have a practice called untamed Iona and you have a website that kind of goes along with that practice untamediona.com. You can look up lots of great articles, blog articles that you've written, um, but also learn more about Lauren. Um, and I think one thing that is really cool is there's um, a famous uh, musician, David Berkeley, and he wrote a song about you and Burning Man syndrome. And um, I wanted to highlight that as well, but just tell us anything you want to about your practice, your website, um, I know you offer individual, um, individuals can come to you and seek both medical care and therapeutic care. And then you also have groups. So just brag about yourself and tell our <laughs> listeners a little bit about what you do. Sure, sure. Um, so first I'll address David Berkeley's song. So I don't have a link to that yet, but I should in the near future, which I will shoot to you when we do. He just recently finished the song. Um, uh -huh. I think the song is applicable to anyone who has, who has or is suffering. Um, and like you said, you can find me at um, untamediona.com. Um, I do therapy and coaching um, for people challenged with mostly any kind of loss. I enjoy doing that sort of work. I also run groups, they're more targeted towards um, people with um, my own disease process, erythromalacia or chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And those are both disease processes I treat in my practice. And I'm also trained as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Um, 
so enjoy working with people in that in that sort of way and use a lot of functional medicine in my practice. So looking at getting at root causes for disease processes. Yeah, well, I highly recommend Lauren. Um, you know, she is out in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but because you know she also works as a coach, you could see her wherever you live in the United States. Um, and so I just want to uh, give you a shout out because people would be so blessed to have you as their therapist, psychiatric nurse practitioner, or coach, whatever the case may be. You are just a blessing in this world and in my life. Um, thank you so much for being here. Kat had to leave a few minutes early, so she uh, sends her appreciation as well. Um, but thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. And thank you and Kat for what you're offering to the world. I enjoy it on a weekly basis. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
Grant me the gentle way through healing. Amen. And these words were by Mary Kendrick Moore. So thank you for joining us. Know that the light in me sees the light in you. Namaste. Thank you.